And greetings, brethren, all around the world. It's good to be able to speak to you again in this way, knowing that you, brethren, all over the earth in various parts of Australia and South Africa, Europe, Britain, and everywhere are able to tune in and to hear this message. So I'm grateful to be able to help you and help you understand more fully the purpose of life and this work and why we're here and what's going on. I'm sure we've all had a wonderful feast. God is with us in this festival every year. He guides us through His Spirit, and we learn lessons, and we should get a spiritual lift, a spiritual boost that should last us the rest of the year. And I pray that God has blessed you, guided you, and helped you to a more full understanding of the purpose of life. Welcome to you new people, too. And I hope that God has given you a lift and a deeper understanding through this festival, because only the Church of God Only the true church which keeps these festivals can understand the purpose. These festivals picture the great plan that God is working out. And no one and no church can understand that unless they keep the festivals that God has commanded. So we're grateful to be here. But now, brethren, we're all headed back home. Every one of us, I hope. Some few of you might be living right where the feast site is. But basically, you're going to be headed at least to your own house. All of us are headed home this afternoon or after this last festival meeting is over. We're going back to our old surroundings. We're going back to our old temptations, like it or not. We'll be seeing the same people in the same situations. And we'll certainly be going back to our old habits and our own weaknesses. Or will we? Will this feast, my brethren, become a turning point in your life? I hope all of us can think on that even now as I begin this final sermon. Let's use this festival as a turning point in our life to drive us to our knees and to help us make a more complete and genuine commitment to the great God of creation, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God that's working out a great purpose on this earth, that we give our lives to Him more fully and more passionately than we have ever done. I hope we can use this festival for that purpose, and I hope that we will understand and do that. We must never forget who we are. We are the church of the living God. And there is a very tiny church. Jesus talks about the little flock. We certainly are that. Turn with me, if you would, back to Matthew chapter 16. Remember, the disciples were asked by Jesus, who do you think men say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, some of the prophets. And then Peter spoke up when he was asked, and he said, verse 16, Matthew 16, verse 16, easy to remember. Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. God Almighty helped Peter to understand, to a degree at least, he did not fully understand, frankly, until after the Holy Spirit came. But he did basically understand that Jesus must be that coming Messiah who was predicted to come. And I say to you, he told Peter, that you are Petros, a Greek word, the diminutive form of a rock, P-E-T-R-O-S in the Greek. And I say you are Petros, a small stone or pebble, and on this rock, a different Greek word, P-E-T-R-A, Petra, which also is the word used for a place that might be, we don't know, might be the place of safety for God's people during the coming great tribulation. On this Petra, I will build my church. Not the Church of England, not the Lutheran Church, 
not some church named after some man or some country or some particular doctrine or two. God's church. Christ is God. I will build my church and the gates of the Hades or the gates of hell, the gates of the grave shall not prevail against it. God's church was always to exist. It was never to be stamped out. And even those people in the church were all to die, of course, basically, except the very few of us who might live to the very end. But everyone is basically going to die. But death does not triumph because the gates of hell shall not prevail. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And our hope is in the resurrection from the dead because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to pay for our sins. And I will give you, he told Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He also said that to all the disciples in Matthew 18. God's true church has the power to bind, make binding decisions based on God's law. Not some new ideas, of course. Then he commanded that they should tell no one he was the Christ. And though from then on he warned them, and he began to tell them that he would suffer many things of the elders, priests, and scribes, who were they, the religious leaders, were the main ones who persecuted Christ, and be killed and be raised again the third day. He was to rise the third day, or as Matthew 12, verse 40 tells us very clearly, after three days and three nights, three days and three nights. I think that's John chapter 12, verse 40, three days and three nights. So we do want to understand it was after three days, and Mark 8, 31 says after three days. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Peter was saying, No, I'm not going to let them kill you. Peter was still carnal. The Holy Spirit had not yet come. But Jesus told Peter, get behind me. Was Peter made the infallible pope when he said, I'll build the church on you? No, he didn't build the church on Peter. He built it on the rock. The rock, that rock was Christ. We read in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, not Peter. So he told the very human Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you're an offense to me. You're not mindful of the things of God or the things of men. Brethren, we in the church of God must learn to be mindful of the things of God all day long. God's laws, the spiritual laws, His laws of health, His laws of how to treat one another, His laws of how to be honoring those in authority in the church, His honor telling us to be honored those in authority even in the nation. Our civil rulers, we may not always agree with them, but we're to honor the office. We're not to revile anyone in high office. All the other things God tells us to do, we're to have the mind of God which is revealed in this book. He, you, you still don't understand the mind of God, Peter was told. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Listen, brethren, this means you and me, too. Very much is repeated two or three times in the New Testament. If anyone desires, anyone, that's you, that's me. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. The term cross was a symbol of torture. And people saw people hanging on crosses all around in Israel at that time. And follow me. He was to set that example to go through suffering. Through much tribulation we entered the kingdom of God. The apostle Paul told them right after he'd been stoned and left for dead there in Acts 13. You must take up the cross and follow Christ. We're going to go through trials and tests, my brethren. We must not give up. 
We must not get weak. We must have courage and faith. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I want to save my life every now and then, and so do you. Save it in the sense, well, we want to have a good time, and we want to do this and do that. A certain amount of relaxation and a change of pace is okay. But you've got to be careful. If that's your main purpose of life, and even a major purpose, that's wrong. Your major purpose, your major thought should be that I belong to Christ. I don't have a life. I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I am his son. I am his daughter. I am his servant. Christ lives in me. That should be your attitude. Like the apostle Peter said, I'm crucified with Christ. We all should die when I go into baptism. Bury the old self. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, not the old ego, but Christ lives in me. Christ must live in you. Your life is not your life. It is God's life. Please understand that as you go home, brother. Think on it. Whoever seeks to save his life, to have all kinds of good times, that's his big motive. That's not right. If you want eternal life, you give your life to God. You let Christ live his life in you, and you really mean it, and you really do it. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world? What if you became a billionaire or a great dictator or whatever and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come, and my brethren, he will come. We know that he didn't come in 2000. We know that he didn't come earlier. But all the scholars that I've ever talked to and even books I've read about chronology, virtually every one of them acknowledges that prophetic understanding about the 7,000 years can be off by 20 or 30 years. Some say more, but basically 20 or 30 years. So that gives us, we're 2013, so that gives us 17 more years. Think about that. There's a few more years. Don't give up on God. When the Son of Man comes in His glory with His angels, then He will reward each one according to His works. We're saved by grace. We're forgiven our past sins and given the chance to have eternal life through the grace of God by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But we're rewarded whether over five cities or ten cities, the degree of reward, the degree of power, the degree of blessings and magnificence that we can achieve throughout all eternity will be based upon what? Many times it says so, based on our works, how much we've served God today, what our works are, how much we've served our brethren, how much we've given of ourselves, how much have you given of yourself to serve your brethren, to have part in this work, to build this work, to get God's message around the world. That's what Christ is watching. He's watching me. He's watching you. I'm far from perfect. I've never given my life perfectly to God, and I know that, and God knows that, but I've tried now. As some of you know, I've been in the work now for about 64 years come this autumn when I came to Ambassador College in September 1939, and I've been at it nearly 64 years. And I've tried to give my life to God and here I am 83 years old and still pushing myself and driving myself with the help of Almighty God to get God's message to this world. That's my main purpose in living and it should be all of us. I mean that. Not, you don't have to be a minister to be that way. Christ says all of us should seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Matthew 6 verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. Not second or third 
and his righteousness. So we want to do that. We in the true church of God should have that as our goal, have that as our purpose in life, have that as our reason for being. That's a very, very important concept. So God has a church. That church began with Jesus Christ. And technically it began back with Moses when Christ was with them and guiding Moses. The church in the wilderness, it's called, back in Acts 7.38. And they were given the basic fundamental laws, the Ten Commandments, the Holy Days. And then they were revived and made a New Testament church, a Spirit-born church, a Spirit-begotten church with God's Spirit in the New Testament. We're in that church which began with Christ through the Apostle John, through Polycarp, through Polycrates, through Peter Waldo, and many thousands of others during the Dark Ages which kept the Sabbath and were persecuted for it, coming on down, of course, in the United States through Stephen Mumford, through A.J. Long, Jacob Brinkerhoff, Herbert W. Armstrong, and now through me and you in this final era of God's church. We are here carrying on the historical church of God, which has always been called the church of God 12 times. Please, you new brethren, understand that. Read it. Read the booklet on where is the true church. The true church is called, God calls things what they are. We are called the church of God 12 times in the New Testament. And that's very important. And God's church keeps the sign of God, the whole of the Sabbath, and God's Sabbaths, including the annual holy days. Those things separate us from virtually every church on earth. And we also do the work of God. We're preparing the kingdom of God and reaching the message, reaching out with the message to the whole world. Also, God's church is to have God's government. We're to preach the kingdom of God, and kingdom means government. And we're training for government. So we're to carry out that government and learn the lessons that God wants us to learn now. So those are things we should think about. Turn back to Acts chapter 20 now, brethren. Acts chapter 20 and verse 27. Acts 20 verse 27. Notice what the Apostle Paul told the elders of his time. He said in verse 27, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He told them about God's entire purpose. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. We're all to do that, especially as ministers, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders to shepherd the church of God. This is one of the 12 times it's called the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Christ has bought and paid for us. We don't have a life. It's his life. He's bought and paid for us. By his precious blood, he died for us, and our life is his life. And we better really understand that. For I know that that after this, and after my departure, savage wolves. It happened. They had a certain way of the church back then. The early church, nearly all church historians, even written by Protestants, they agree. The church kept the weekly Sabbath. They kept the holy days. They kept the basic laws of God. They were not keeping animal sacrifices at all that they were doing those things suddenly it came in a change took over and false men came in and then out of that developed the catholic church during the dark ages and then the protestants came out of the catholic church during the latter part of what we call the dark ages which were very dark and the protestants said they were going to get to back to the bible the whole bible and nothing but the bible this leader named chillingworth said but they didn't 
They didn't do that at all. They simply rejected the Pope and certain Catholic things, but they kept most of the pagan ideas of going to heaven, going to hell, the immortality of the soul, all kinds of things like that. They kept that were part of Catholicism. They never really understood because God is not trying to save the world now. We're not better, but God has given us understanding, and we need to appreciate that. And brethren, with that understanding comes responsibility. To whom much is given of him shall much be required. We are to hold ourselves to a higher standard or to be the ambassadors of Jesus Christ and get his message to the world with all our hearts and be those people who are filled with zeal and fire to prepare the way for the coming government of God on this earth. Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And, of course, they take away people also from among yourselves. He said, even to those elders. Yes, elders fall away. And as most of you older brethren know, many evangelists have fallen away, even in our lifetime. And I'm no better than any of the others. Humanly speaking, I made mistakes just like everyone else. But I'm the only one of the evangelists of God ordained by Mr. Armstrong that is still living and still active in the work, actively doing the work of God. And most of you know that. I better not name him all. But, of course, Mr. Armstrong is dead. Ted's gone. Dick's dead. Raymond Cole and Raymond McNair are all dead, the others. And some few are still living, but they're not active in the work. God has guided my life and used me so I can teach you and move you and inspire you and give you the example of what I learned personally for thousands of hours at the feet of Mr. Armstrong. And I want to do that while I'm alive. And so I hope you can understand that and appreciate not me, but at least what I can give to you so you get it and get it straight. So he said, among yourselves, even among your elders, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. They always want to start their own church. They want to be important. He said, therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He warned them night and day with tears. He preached to them on the Sabbath. He probably had Bible studies and personal visits through the week. He'd say, brethren, please don't fall away. Hang on to God's law. Hang on to God's truth. Let Christ live his same life in you, the obedient life he lived through the Spirit 1,900 years ago. Or in Paul's time, it was just a few years ago. He pleaded with them. Don't fall away. Don't give up and quit. And I'm asking you the same thing. Don't ever give up. God will not give up on you, but you must not give up on God or give up on God's way. God holds us to that. He doesn't automatically give us eternal life. If you want eternal life, you need to want it, cry out for it, pray for it, and do your part to get it, and yield and cry out for it so much you can taste it. Make it the important thing in your life. That's why you're here, and you're being called now ahead of time, to be kings and priests in God's kingdom. That's the reason. He could have called you later on. Most of the world is blinded. As it says very clearly in Revelation 12, 9, Satan has blinded all the nations, not some, but all the nations are blinded. And God makes that very clear. But you, he is called out. You understand. You have responsibility. And God is using you and preparing you to be those kings and priests that are talked about that will be there assisting Christ all through the millennium and all through eternity. And we're called now ahead of time, and that is an awesome blessing. But we have greater trials because we're part of this world now. Back in 1 Corinthians 
6, as I described to you, the opening night. But turn there again. It's important. He said in verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And you, if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? The world is going to be judged or guided or ruled by you, you brethren, under Christ. Watch your spirit being born of God and given perfect knowledge and understanding. Then if you have yielded to Christ to live his life in you, God will impart to you the extra technical knowledge that you need. You won't have it all yet, but you'd better be getting all you can now. And God wants you to and prepares the way. He'll give you the extra strength, the extra self-control, the extra love and outflowing concern for all your people and for the whole world. The world will be ruled by you. Verse 3, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? We're even going to help God judge the angelic hosts. How much more things that pertain to this life, he tells us. If then you have judgments concerning this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Or why do you, as many translations have it, in the form of a question, why would you appoint the outsiders and go to some carnal judge who doesn't even know judge God? Why won't you trust God to guide his church, to guide his ministry, and let that be real to you, that Christ is the living, active head of his church, and have respect for that? which many in the church still don't do. Frankly, some of you know they don't understand that even yet. I say this to you, to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? You and I are being trained to be those kings and priests who in a very few years, perhaps even the next 8 to 18 years or whatever it is, when Christ will come back to this earth, you can help him rule this world. You need to understand that. I'm not trying to set dates. It might be 20 or 25 years. But I feel it will probably be in that other time frame. We don't know. But we'd better be ready. We had better be ready. We are given a tremendous opportunity. So let's understand. We've got to be ready to be those kings and priests because we've been given deep understanding. But we also need to have faith and courage as these years unfold. For this world will hate us. They will hate us because of what we're believing and what we're teaching. And brethren, they will attack us. God will have to be real to you to go through those attacks and to be faithful. Turn to John, if you would, the Gospel of John, and now chapter uh, 16. I'm going to find it here in my Bible. Chapter 16, if you would, of the book of John. Chapter 16 of the book of John. He's talking to his disciples, but also to us, obviously. Verse 1, These things I have spoken to you, Jesus said, that you should not be made to stumble. I don't want you to give up and quit. I want to warn you ahead of time. And brethren, I'm warning you ahead of time in the name of Jesus Christ. Tests are coming. Upsets in this nation are coming. Trials and tests are going to come on the church on the nation, and on you and me personally, way beyond what we've ever experienced. Please understand that. Be ready. Be strong. Know who you are. You are the begotten sons and daughters of the great God, and God's Holy Spirit is to live in you, and Christ is to live in you. Never forget that. Never forget who you are and must be. They will put you out of the churches or synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. They're going to hate you that much. That's what Jesus told his followers then. Verse 3, 
Why? Why would they do this? And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father or me. Many ministers and priests and others around the world know about God. They know about God, but they don't really know God. They're not really acquainted with the true God of creation, the God of the Bible. Jesus said through his favorite apostle, the apostle John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's what was said, of course, by Jesus Christ through John. Whoever says, I know God, yes, they say they know God, and does not keep God's commandments, plural, is a liar. They know about God, but they don't know God unless they experience Christ living in them and develop that very character of keeping the commandments, the way of God through the Holy Spirit, helping them overcome themselves, helping them overcome the world, helping them overcome Satan the devil. You are God's servants. You have that power. But none of us know God unless we walk that way and have God through Christ live his life in us then we know God. People in the world do not know God. They may know about God. They may go to church on the day of the sun. They may keep pagan Christmas and Easter. They may talk about God and they talk about the Bible. They'll have true-sounding phrases and cliches, but they don't really know God unless Christ is living in them the same basic way of life he lived in 1900 years ago. He set us an example that we should follow in his steps. So let's understand that. And we've got to realize that if we do that, even then we're going to have trouble in the world. We have to have faith and courage because they do not know God. Therefore, they will hate us and persecute us. We're in a spiritual war. Turn back to Ephesians, if you would, brethren. Ephesians chapter 6. Paul is warning at the very end of this letter to the Ephesian church of God. He said in verse 10, Ephesians 6 and verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Don't be weak. Don't be lukewarm. Be strong. And in the power of His might, we're supposed to have power, not weakness. Put on the whole armor of God because we're in a battle. We need armor that you may be able to stand against the wiles, against the scheming, against the stratagems, all kinds of tricky ways Satan the devil has. If he can't get you one way, he'll come at you a different direction or a different way, a different time, and try to get you and break you down and make you discouraged and make you feel unable and make you want to give up and quit. He'll keep coming at you, the schemings of Satan the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, nor are wrestling spirit beings. We're in a battle, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenlies. The spiritual hosts of wickedness, whole millions of fallen angels called demons are going to get at us, hurt us, put wrong thoughts in our head, lusts in our mind that weren't there because we tried for them or read something or saw something pornographic, just ideas pounding in our brain to hurt us, to turn us aside from the way of God, to make us selfish, to make us bitter, to make us lustful. Fight it. Fight it, brethren. You're in a spiritual war. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. You need it all that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. What do we put around our waist? Around our waist and our stomach area and our lower parts or what? 
the lust for food and drink, the lust for sex, wrong kinds of sex usually as we're growing up, that's where those lusts originate. You need truth. It's not wrong to eat or drink. It's not wrong to get married and have children. You must learn to use those things God's way. That's why he says truth. Do it the way of God. Gird your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness is keeping God's commandments. God tells us back that in Psalm 119, verse 172, that righteousness is those that keep God's commandments, and the whole Bible tells you that, of course. That's what Christ told the young man came in to ask him the way of eternal life. You know, back in Psalm 19, 17, if you would enter into life, keep the commandments Jesus Christ said. Many Protestants think Christ did away with that. He never did away with that. The dark robe bishops during the dark ages did away with that. Not Christ or not Christ's immediate disciples ever. So you're to gird your waist with uh, the gospel or with truth and you're to have on righteousness over your heart and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You're to be busy doing and walking and carrying out the gospel and getting that message to the world. Above all, at this time in a battle, taking what? The shield of faith. In a battle, you better have courage. Faith and courage because you're in war. This is war. And you're in that war whether you recognize it or not. You need the shield of faith to know God and know that you know God which is a, with which you're able to quench the fiery darts. Poison darts are shot at you with poisons trying to get at your heart, your mind, your attitude and turn you away from God. All the fiery darts of who? The wicked one, Satan the devil and his demons shooting at you. And take, brethren, as Paul said, the helmet of salvation, God's Holy Spirit in your mind, the helmet protecting your mind, which guides everything else. And the sword of the Spirit, the only offensive weapon you have to strike back is this word. The Bible is the revelation of the mind of God. It tells you how to live, how to do. Study this word as a swordsman. Study swordsmanship where you know how to parry and thrust and hack and you know how to use the word of God. You feed on Christ. Feed on Christ. Drink in of it. Saturate your mind with it, as it says in John 6, verse 57. Feed on Christ. Make him part of your very being that you will learn to think like he thinks and act like he does. Praying always. Don't give up on prayer. Get up every morning and pray before the world work gets going. Meditate on the ways of God as you study and pray. And then fast. Use the tool of fasting to get close to God. And then number five, walk with God. Use all these things. And walk with God. Talk with God. Commune with God. And walk with God with your hand in Christ's hand all day long. And be watch, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me that I may open my mouth boldly. Pray, Paul says, for me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of life. Most people don't understand it at all. They don't know why they're hearing. Many millions of Jews, as you know, have given up on God. They say, where was God during the Holocaust? There's the famous letter from one of the Russian soldiers at the Battle of Leningrad, or Stalingrad, I think it was, where so many millions of people were killed he says, where was God? Well, God was around, but he was not guiding those people. Why? He's letting this world go its own way for 6,000 years. 
And if they don't serve God and serve Christ, if God has not called them, He lets them learn their lessons and burn their fingers. So finally, for most of them in the great white throne judgment, they will be willing to listen, to really listen finally to the truth of God. But it's a mystery for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Paul was in chains that I make speak boldly as I ought to speak. So I ask you to pray for me, brethren, as Paul asked to pray for him. I'm an ambassador in chains, so to speak. I'm not in literal chains right now. I may be someday. And I've got to be willing to do that, and I am. But God has allowed me to have a stroke. God allowed the Apostle Paul to spend most of his last five years in prison. That's where he was. Read about it. That's where he spent many of his years, in prison. And, of course, he had this thorn in the flesh as well. He humbles us. He keeps us realizing how weak we are, and only through Christ in us can we do his work. So pray for each other. And I pray for you, and I appreciate many of you have hung in. I can start naming some of you older brethren. You've been in the church for decades. Thank God for you and all of you younger people. Don't just be afraid of these older people. Watch them. They've been around a while. They've learned some lessons, I hope, and I think most of us have. You've been through trials and tests. We've got to keep that hope and never give up and quit and be willing to go through persecution, be willing to go through trials and tests and put on the spiritual armor of God and fight like fury, Satan, the devil, and his demons and our human nature so we can be there, literally be there when Christ returns. And we've got to have, of course, the shield of faith to ward off the fiery darts of the wicked. You're going to need faith and courage, my brethren, in the years just ahead. We've seen how the Supreme Court is coming down affirming certain aspects of, frankly, homosexual marriage. Men marry men. Our president said out said he doesn't have any problem with that. Hillary Clinton has no problem with that. Our leaders here and in France and Britain all over the world, even people in the churches, supposedly ministers of God, are saying it's okay. And they'll even ordain. They not only take them out and get rid of them like they did in ancient Israel, they actually want to ordain them as ministers of Jesus Christ. That is unbelievable. Unbelievable. But that's where we've gotten, even in so-called Christianity, as people go along with every rotten, foul thing. We are near the end of the age, the very end. Please understand, don't let that overcome you. How can you know and know that you know? I sometimes review certain things in my life to have faith. God called me when I was 19 years old had one year of college in Missouri, came out to ambassador doing virtually nothing. I came to know about the Bible, as Mr. Armstrong read and expounded, verse after verse, not just referring to something, but reading and explaining and expounding it out of this book. The first Feast of Tabernacles, as I've told you, he preached 17 sermons, the opening night and morning and afternoon, morning and afternoon sermons every day for the next eight days, explained the whole way of God. We came to know God to understand this book over those years in Ambassador College. And God became real. I saw how God changed lives. He really changed. On the baptizing tours, I saw how people's lives were definitely changed. They weren't just sentimental. They had definitely changed their way of life, and God's Spirit was there changing their lives. I saw miracles take place in that way. I also saw lots of other miracles, as I've told you. I was able to personally teach and love and personally baptize a man named Howard Clark who was my age. Well, while I was in college, he was in the Korean War and had shrapnel wounds 
and was a paraplegic or quadriplegic sitting in a wheelchair down the right aisle here, right from me as I was preaching from the Shakespeare Club. There he was sitting there year after year. Wasn't something he was putting on. Had he been to the doctor? Yes. Dozens of them. Hospitals? Yes. The Navy put him in all the hospitals they could, gave him every treatment. He couldn't move virtually, just a little tiny bit. And there he was. And over Pentecost weekend in 1958, my friend, one of my best friends, Richard David Armstrong, healed him. God used Dick to heal that man, and he got up and began to walk all over. I've told you about that. He's a tremendous miracle, and I saw it. I can never forget that. I can never forget this lady coming up who had been had one breast removed and breast cancer, and the cancer had gone into the other breast, and the doctors diagnosed it. Not some chiropractor, which is not wrong, but the medical team that specialized in cancer in this city. And they diagnosed the same thing. The cancer had gone to the other breast. She was dying and in horrible pain. And she finally cried out to the minister, please come over and ask that God either heal me now or let me die. And the women who'd been taking care of her and bathing her so her husband could work were crying. They were all there. They saw it. After she was anointed, she was healed by God within a minute or two, by God Almighty who intervened. Brethren, I saw the woman come up who had had an anointed cloth from Mr. Herbert Armstrong on the baptizing tour with Raymond McNair. And she came up, and after we'd finished everything, she had nothing to gain by it, but she showed us this arm that was beginning to grow out. And she said it had been a withered arm all my life, hanging there like a rope. And she got the anointed cloth from Mr. Armstrong. It just grew out. Her Baptist friend was there with her who was not coming into the church. I just asked her. I was from Missouri. I checked up. Have you seen her? Did you know? Oh, yeah, we grew up as childhood friends. Did you see that? Yes. She was always crippled. She knew God healed her friend supernaturally. I saw that. I know that. I've seen many, many others healed. And I've been able to understand those things. I've seen how Mr. Armstrong predicted and the Bible prophecies indicated there would be two legs to the beast rising in Europe and he knew the eastern leg had to mean that the eastern European nations would break free from the Soviet. He preached that again and again and it happened after he died. He didn't bring it about. God did, but he said it again and again. And that winter, was it 1989, 1990? Yes, it began to break free. The eastern European nations broke free the Berlin Wall came down. He said specifically, the Berlin Wall will come down. Mr. Armstrong said it did come down. The two Germanys came together. And now as we taught, and as I taught for about 61 years, based on the Bible and based on what he had taught us, certainly the big picture, that Germany would be the most powerful nation in Europe and be the leader. Yes, they're there right now. That's happened. All these other things have happened. They're real things. You young people need to understand. It's affecting tens of millions and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. These are real things. The great God, the God I serve, and I hope the God all of you serve, that God is real. That God is powerful. That real God is beginning to intervene now, just as he said. We'd better get with it, brethren. We must not give up. We must not turn aside. We must not water God's word down. God help you to understand and to go on and put your total faith and trust in God and walk with God and take the shield of faith against these darts from Satan the devil to try to discourage you that are going to come on you because that God is very real. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians now, if you would. 1 Thessalonians, and I want to turn here to verse uh, 
chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, and beginning in verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. Paul wrote, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Brethren, when people die, we've had people die in the church. I remember how sorrowful it was when Dick Armstrong died and when Mrs. Armstrong died and many, many others down through the ages. God is allowing people to die. People have always died in the church. They don't all live to be exactly 70. Some live longer, some live a little shorter. But lest you have fallen asleep. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. Many in the church in Paul's day had already fallen asleep when he wrote this. Don't sorrow as others who have no hope. We're sorrowful, but we do have hope. We see the big picture because we know and know that we know that the hope of the Christian is not eternal life in this flesh, but eternal life as a spirit being in the coming kingdom of God when Christ will come back. And we hear that last trumpet and the dead will rise up. And we're looking forward to that. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. They're just sleeping a temporary death. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, some few of you younger people may live right up until Christ returns, will by no means precede those who are asleep. He gives those who die the honor of rising, I don't know whether it's a few seconds or minutes or hours earlier, but they get the first chance because they had to die for a while. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, tremendous shout around the world, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. Boy, that's going to be a good sign. If some of us are still alive and in a place of safety and we hear a great trumpet and whoop, 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 all over the earth, I think chills are going up and down our spine. We'll think, wow. This is it. This is it. And we'll finally achieve the reward that we've been working for. He will come with the last trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise first. They might, they will. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then say we go to heaven, we meet him in the air of this earth's atmosphere and so will we ever or always be with the Lord. Where will he be? Well, all the rest of the New Testament and the Old Testament shows he will be on this earth ruling over the nations right here. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is very real. Then Paul continues, chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. And brethren, we've warned you, don't say the Lord delays his coming. It hasn't come as quick as we thought. But when it does come, things will speed up tremendously at the very end. We do not want to let down. And he's warning us here. God is warning us. For when they say peace and safety, oh, well, it looks like we've got several more years. They're going to say that. Then suddenly destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape those who kind of waffle around and aren't sure and give up on God. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that day should come upon you as a thief. Don't let it. Watch. Be aware. You're all sons of light, sons of day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others. Don't sleep. Don't be a lady of sin. Don't take it easy. But let us watch and be alert, 
let us watch and be alert or sober, alert, self-controlled, zealous, waiting on God, preparing for that coming government, preparing for that last trump, and preparing ourselves through Christ living within us to be those kings and priests in God's coming kingdom on this earth. This is a tremendous opportunity we have. Now, brethren, let's turn back to Romans chapter 7. Turn with me at this point to Romans, the book of Romans chapter 7. And this is a magnificent part of the Bible. And I don't mean Romans 7. I'm telling you wrong here. Uh, I mean Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to get a little tea here. Romans chapter 8. And let's begin reading in verse 12. Paul tells us, Therefore, brethren, and he's talking to us too, God's inspired these words for us. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We must not live according to the flesh. Don't go back home and get in your old habits. Don't go back home and take up with your worldly friends if you have them carrying on their way of life. You can love them, but don't be like them. Don't associate with them too much. Be careful. Walk with God and put God first in your life. So don't live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you conquer, you control the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by, not that you once had God's Spirit in baptism, but you kept that Spirit alive by studying, meditating, praying, fasting, crying out to God, walking with God, led by God's Spirit. As many as are led by God's Spirit, they will live, as it says here. They are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. You're not to be afraid and walking in fear. You should know God. But you have received the spirit of sonship. It's translated that way in the New International Version and other places show us that word means to make a son. It is not adoption. God does not adopt people that don't have His very nature. His very nature comes right out from Him and we are begotten of the Spirit of God. We have His nature put in us through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Sonship by whom we cry out. We literally come to know God. Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. I remember when I was being swept down the creek, as I think I may have mentioned in a sermon on fatherhood some time back, my, I literally cried out, Daddy! And my father jumped in that. He'd been a college swimming champion. He came at me just like Tarzan, grabbed me out and saved me. Daddy, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. God's Spirit is there. We sense it. We feel it. To the degree, brethren, that you and I study this book and pray and fast and meditate and consciously walk with God, we will feel and sense and know and know that we know that we're being helped by outside power to do things and to conquer ourselves and the world and Satan beyond what we could ever do on our own. We don't just pretend and have sentimental feelings and then go wondering. We know, and we know that we know that God is with us. We know that we know because we sense God's Spirit is with us. We see that, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Christ is going to inherit the whole universe. We are joint heirs with our real elder brother, Jesus Christ. We're going to be members of the family of God. He is our real elder brother. It's not some sentimental idea. It's not a simile or something like that. It's a real thing that's going to happen to you and me if we let Christ live his life in us. 
we are born of God and we will have that same reward. We're joint heirs with Christ. He's not trying to play word games here. He means it. If indeed we suffer with him, as we go through trials and tests, you and I are going to go through trials and tests. Brethren, I know many of you have brethren or relatives at home, I should say, who may harass you, persecute you, put you down. You may have bosses who fire you. You may have people around who cuss and tell dirty jokes and try to pollute your mind and hurt you. Some will hurt you physically or yell at you. Don't give in to it. Don't give in to it. Walk with God. Have Christ living in you. He will love you. He will take care of you. He will always help you. He will never forsake you. Never. If we suffer with him, we may be glorified together. Glorified. For I consider the sufferings of this present time, all these trials and tests that we go through in this life, are not worthy to be compared with the glory when we explode and we're spreadly a spirit being and we feel ourselves rising in the air in a sense of power and a magnificence and a radiant power coming out from us such as we have never had before, we'll say, wow, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. We had loved ones die. We got fired from our job. God let some of us have sicknesses that lasted for days or weeks or months or years. We hurt. We had pain. We were put down, humiliated. Suddenly, it's all worth it as we are glorified with Christ, when that glory is revealed in us, not to us, in us. For the earnest expectation of the whole creation, the whole world out there, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. God has let mankind pollute the earth. The air is polluted. The water is polluted. The foods are being polluted. We're eating. Everything is going down because of man. God has allowed that. So we begin to cry out, and it's even the creation itself seems to cry out for the revealing of the sons of God, for God's kingdom to come and save the creation, to save the animals before they're destroyed, to save the water for it totally polluted, the food for being too polluted and giving so many of our loved ones cancer, cancer, because they're eating polluted foods and eating wrong kinds of foods, and they don't understand. All kinds of things like that are happening today. As you know, brethren, God's going to save us from that. We cry out. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. It's crying out for the revealing of God's sons. And not only they, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, God's very nature put in us. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Please come soon. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Help us intervene in world affairs. Come quickly. We should cry out for that. We should pray for that constantly eagerly waiting for the spirit of sonship or the revealing of sons, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. We're not saved in the sense of being made spirit yet, but we're saved first by being forgiven our past sins. Then we're being saved as Christ lives in us. All three aspects are used. We're finally saved, as Jesus said in Matthew 24:13. He that endures to the end shall be saved. At the very end, we are made spirit beings. So we're saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? It's not here yet. I know that, brethren. Some of you get discouraged. It's not here yet. It's going to come. As I've seen Howard Clark healed, as I've seen these Berlin Wall come down, the Eastern European nations, tens of millions of people, young people understand these things are not done in a corner. They involve hundreds of millions of human beings. God intervened in our time, and I've seen it. 
Many of your brethren, your older uh, brethren and, and, and parents have seen it. It's real. So God is real. Likewise, the Spirit then is going to help us. It helps our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Verse 26, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So it says the Spirit makes intercession. And Christ himself is the mind of the Spirit that God reveals. He is the one who makes intercession for us, as it says later in this very verse or this chapter. Now, he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession, Christ does, for the saints according to the will of God. And he's praying for us. Brethren, we have a great high priest at God's right hand who is tempted has been tempted in all points like as we are. Hebrews chapter 4, 15. Christ was tempted in every basic way just like we are. He made it. And by Him living within us, through that power, we can make it. Through Him, it's not us. It's Christ living within us. We can make it. We shall make it. We must make it. Walk with God and never turn aside. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. I know often people in the world, some who don't even know God or try to pretend to be a Christian, they'll say, oh, all things work for good, blah, blah, blah. Well, they don't understand. All things do not work for good for people who disobey God and turn aside from God and cuss and kill and lust and hate and fight and get drunk and so on. They'll have terrible things happen in this life for no purpose. Ultimately, will work good, I guess, if God brings them up in the great white throne judgment. But right now, all things work for, together for good to those who love God. What, how do you love God? 1 John 5, 3. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God. But God defines that love. He tells us what it is. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. They're not too hard. That's what your Bible says. 1 John 5, 3. So he, those who love God are those who are called according to His purpose. And most of you are called. Your chance is now. My chance is now. I'm not going to have another chance. I'm having my chance now, and I understand that. And I hope that you do too. For whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Christ is the firstborn among many brethren. Many of you will be full sons of God in a few years. Full sons of God, glorified beings. You will be like Christ to a limited extent. You'll have glory, power, tremendous wisdom to serve Him, help Him administer the government of God over this earth and bring peace to those people who are right now suffering all through the Middle East, fighting and hating one another, fighting each other all over the world. The people in Africa who are being starved and beaten and raped and robbed and beaten up by the competing tribes and, and terrible wars they're having there, sectarian wars of all kinds, all over the world, crying out for the revealing of the sons of God. And that's us. That's us. Think about it. Why are you here to be part of that team under Jesus Christ to bring peace and joy? Come help humanity. Give your life to God. You young people, come help humanity. Want to be part of God's kingdom. Want to save these and help these help, helpless human beings out there and help them live a right life in the kingdom of God. And so that's our opportunity right now because we're called. 
So it says, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, many brethren, many of you, hopefully all of you. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called. He planned out ahead of time the type of people he would call, and he is. And those he called, he justified in his plan. He would make them right again, forgive their past sins, make them one with God. And whom he justified, he glorified. And his plan, we're already there if we hang on. Glorified spirit beings. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Think, brethren, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing. Nothing. We have that opportunity. The great God who gives us life and breath is going to fight every battle. He will deliver us. He will help us through these terrible years just ahead of us. He will never give up on us as long as we don't give up on him. Go home with that zeal. Go home with that absolute faith in the great God who gives you life and breath and who is now intervening in human history just as he said he would. So we want to have that kind of faith. Who, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And the Greek word is tapanta here, which we've seen in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, means the whole universe. Tapanta, the whole universe. He will give us everything. We will be kings and priests over cities, as Jesus said in Luke 19 in the parable of the pounds and so on, as we overcome. And eventually, the Bible indicates there may be other creations on other planets, all those sparkling stars out there. We have an opportunity eventually, to be part of the very family of God ruling the whole universe. It's awesome. Our minds can't fully grasp it. We don't know the details. We don't know all the twists and turns along the way, brethren. We want to understand that. But we do know the big picture, and we can have absolute faith in that. And I've seen how God has worked that out, how he's changed the lives of others and guided everyone in the work for the last 64 years I've been in the work, and I've seen it happen. To the degree that any one of us follows the way of God, we will have that blessing. He never gives up. He never quits. He never turns aside. We have the chance to do and to have meet that goal, if we will, if we do not allow ourselves to get ever, ever bitter, if we do not allow ourselves to get discouraged, if we do not give up and quit, God will make us his full sons. So he's going to glorify us and give us that chance if we walk with him. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He who is condemned, uh, who is condemned, it is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Christ is the one who makes intercession. As I said a few years ago, a few days, minutes ago here in this, verse 34 ties in back here with verse 27. He who makes intercession, that's Christ. Our high priest at God's right hand makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who's going to cut us off from God? Think about this as you go home. Nobody shall tribulation, distress, persecution. Is persecution going to separate you? What if I'm thrown in a jail and I'm all alone? So what? God is there. Christ is there. He will take care of us. He'll be with us powerfully if we continue to pray to him and walk with him and he has become real to us. So persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, as is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. 
we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are going to make it. No one can stop that. We are going to make it if we do our part. We are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us, by Christ living in us through his spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing. I don't care if they invent some new space machine or some special death ray or something. Does that bother God? No, nothing like that's going to outsmart God. As I've said, if they strap me in some machine and put me in outer space, am I cut off from God? Outer space, what do you mean? Just a little pinprick above what God can, or above the earth from God's point of view. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing present nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love, God's total outflowing concern for us. He is our Father. I always remember, as I've told you before, and I think you older brethren won't mind, something that brought tears to my eyes years ago, reading about our former president, Dwight David Eisenhower, became the commanding general of the greatest army in human history thus far, the leader of the Normandy invasion, later became president of Columbia University, and finally president of the United States of America for two terms. He had a little baby who died way back when, before any of that happened, a little boy. And at the very end of his life, the word came that he was going to be buried back in Abilene, Kansas, and he was going to be buried next to, beside his wife, this little son that he only knew for a few years. He had an older son who was Colonel Eisenhower. John Eisenhower, I think, was his name, a fine man. But he chose to be buried with that little son he loved. He never forgot. God will never forget any human being. Never forget any human being. They're made in the image of God. These women should not murder their babies. They're going to have to face those babies someday in the great white throne judgment. God does not give up on any of us. He's going to give these millions out there a chance to have an opportunity. This very day pictures. And he's certainly not going to give, on up, give up on us who've already served God, prayed to God, cried out to God, asked God for help, yielded to him and walked with him. Not perfectly. None of us do it perfectly. But to the degree that we can with Christ in us, he will never give up on us. He will never leave us, never forsake us. And when the time comes, he will make us his full sons in his everlasting kingdom. He will resurrect us from that grave. And we will be glorified spirit beings in the very family of God and fulfill the purpose for which God created us, the purpose for which God called us, and the purpose for which God blessed us. We can look forward to that. Our God will never give up on us. He is our Father. Christ is our loving elder brother who saved us with his shed blood. They will never give up on us. We must never give up on them or their way or their truth. Brethren, may God help you to go home with this thought in your mind and walk with God and talk with God more closely than ever before. Let this feast be a turning point in your life and give your life to God more profoundly and have the very faith and courage and the understanding and the love of Christ in you to serve others, to serve God, to be part of this work 
to be active preparing for that coming kingdom as you go back home. Walk with God and walk with him right on over into the kingdom of God. Thank you, brethren, for your prayers. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for acting on the truth and being here. Pray for us. We pray for you. May God bless you, protect you, and guide you as you go home.